Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're continuing you know, on through the, uh, through the New Testament, and uh, the title this morning is Paul Urges Forgiveness. The Apostle Paul Urges Forgiveness. And forgiveness, I tell you, it's one of the most important things in our lives, to forgive and to be forgiven. I mean, Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Showing how important forgiveness is. And we need that forgiveness of our sins. And he's the only one who can forgive us of our sins. Now this letter that Paul wrote, the second letter to the Corinthians. Teaches us some great truths about God's comfort. In chapter 1. Last week when we were together. We saw God's comfort for life's plans. And we need many times... God's comfort in life's plans because our plans don't always come out the way we want them to. We make plans, but God has the final say. And sometimes they don't meet our ideas. Uh, They're not what we expected. Uh, We think everything's going well and all of a sudden, one morning or one afternoon, one day, whatever it might be, things just go haywire. And that's where we find out God comforts us in all of our tribulations. And now we see here in chapter 2, God's comfort in restoring a sinning believer. It's about a believer who had committed a very offensive sin in the church. And it was time for him to be forgiven after the proper measurements were taken in his discipline. But before Paul gets into this subject, he continues with the subject of chapter 1. Where he's explaining why he didn't go to Corinth to visit the Corinthians earlier. And then he talks about the sinning believer in the Corinthian church. And then lastly, he shows that God causes us to triumph in Christ. Our victory in all things is in Jesus Christ. Paul had changed his plans to go to Corinth due to some outward complications. Plus, he had some inward concerns about going to Corinth. The things that concerned Paul the most was the sorrow that he might cause if he goes there. And also, he he wants to go there because there's a situation there that he has to correct. And he touches on the sorrow that he might cause if he goes to Corinth a second time. For instance, he speaks about it in his decision. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. So Paul was telling the Corinthians, look, he says, I decided I'm I'm not going to bring you grief. I don't want to bring you grief with another painful visit. So Paul is continuing here with the subject that he started in chapter 21. And it seems that Paul had already paid the Corinthians one painful visit. And so he makes up his mind here not to visit them again like that. It also seems the rebellion against Paul is still going on. There are people that are still rebelling against Paul. They're they're questioning his spiritual authority. All of that has come to a head. But he was very likely, 
this rebellion was very likely led by somebody, and most likely somebody who thought Peter's apostleship was above Paul's. So this kind of, people had this kind of, well, you know, I follow Paul, and I follow Peter, and I follow this guy, and, and you know, and yet they're all pointing them to Jesus Christ, but yet we seem to follow men many times. Nobody knew better than Paul that we live in a time of grace and that our ministry isn't to call down fire and brimstone on people. We're to be patient, we're to be loving, as he'd already taught them in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is known as the love chapter. So instead of threats and lightning bolts and showing his his apostolic power, we see his discretion in not going to Corinth for a second time. Notice in verse 2. Notice what he says. He says, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? He says, If I cause you grief by going you know, to Corinth, who's going to make me glad? Certainly not somebody that I have grieved. So Paul's first visit to Corinth, it was a joyful one. He met Priscilla and Aquila there who, who were run out of Rome and had supported himself by working with them, making tents. Priscilla, Aquila, and Paul, they were tent makers, and that's how they made their living. Right from the start, God's hand of blessing was on Paul's ministry. And for several Sabbaths, he had been allowed to preach in the Corinth synagogue. And his work there had been twice as fruitful once Silas and Timothy joined him there. But eventually, Paul was kicked out of the synagogue like he was kicked out of many other synagogues for preaching Christ. But he continued to be uh, victorious because Crispus, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, he had become a Christian. He had, he had converted to Christianity. He had accepted Christ. And now uh, there was a suitable meeting place for this new church. It had been found, but it was practically next door to this synagogue, which was, you know... Uh, Something that happens many times. And what happened was the unbelieving Jews, the ones who did not believe in Christ, when Paul preached about Christ, they converted to Jesus Christ. They heard the truth of the gospel. They came to Christ. And now many of those in the synagogue were forced to watch many of their congregation leave the synagogue to join the new church down the street where Paul was preaching the gospel. Also, the year and a half Paul stayed in Corinth was, oddly enough, it was without riots and chaos that usually followed Paul's ministry wherever he went. So it was, you know, when Paul would go into town and he'd preach Jesus Christ, you could expect a riot. You could expect, you know, a, a, a chaotic time because there were many who would, who would come against Paul because he was preaching Christ. It's not any different today. You see people preaching about Christ, talking about Christ. And guess what? You have people throwing stuff at them. You have people tearing up their Bibles. You have people cursing at them. You have people doing all kinds of things. And you got to ask yourself why. Because they speak the truth. They speak the truth. People don't want to hear the truth. They'd rather hear a lie. They'd rather hear something that, that tickles their ears, that makes them feel good. Jesus came to tell us the truth, that we need a Savior, that our hearts need to be changed. This world is evident of that this morning. People's hearts need to be changed, and only Jesus Christ can change a heart. So again, 
it was unusual that to, for Paul to be preaching somewhere and there wasn't, weren't riots going on. Many Jews and Greeks became saved because of Paul's ministry. Even many city officials turned to Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul had a lot of memories. He had good joys that were united with those who were in Corinth. So he's thinking here, what would be the point in me causing them pain who brought me so much joy? So Paul was still hoping for a peaceful ending to this crisis that was going on in, in, the, in Corinth, in the Corinthian church. So it wasn't just his inward concerns that consume Paul's thoughts by themselves, but the sorrow that he might cause if he goes there again. But here's the other thing. What kind of love would it be that wouldn't correct and discipline because he was afraid of causing pain? And as a parent, we can understand that. We love our children. We don't like causing them pain. But sometimes when we discipline them, we do. Because we love them. And we want them to get back on the right track. And that's the thing with Paul. There was a problem going on in the church. He had to go down there. He had to deal with it. And that's because he loved them. And you can't just let something, you know, go undone that needs correction. And so that's Paul's hope. Again, it, it, you know, uh, he, he also thought about the situation that they had to correct there. Okay? It seems instead of going back to Corinth, he wrote them this letter that now becomes the subject of this part of the letter that in this chapter we're looking at this morning. And he mentions the reason for the letter. He speaks about the hypocrisy that he exposed in the letter. Look at verse 3 now. He says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. It seems the letter that Paul had written in the place of another visit, in other words, he wrote this letter, instead of going down there, he writes this letter to them. And he certainly didn't spare them by not going down there because the things that he had to deal with there in person, he dealt with them in the letter to the people. The letter was sharp. In other words, it... it, it, it told the people what they needed to do to fix things there in the church. It was to the point, even though it was written in tears because Paul loved the people and he didn't want them to, to be hurt. But nonetheless, in order to straighten out that, that, that serious problem that was in the church, the thing that they had to be dealt with, you know, it, 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 he had to deal with it, though it was from a broken heart. You know, he, he loved the people. So there was also, uh, again, uh, this, there's a man there they committed this sin. There were two people in particular in Corinth that Paul was worrying about most. One was the incestuous man, all right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the, the, celeste, the, the, the incestuous man that Paul ordered to be excommunicated for the church because this particular individual slept with his mother-in-law. And the people, it was like no big deal. It was like, oh, we're so open-minded and... and there are some things that we need to understand that, that God says, no, no, this isn't something, this is a sin. And so Paul was worried about this individual. He was worried about dealing with this situation and getting the church to see, see it through the eyes of God. So Paul was, first of all, worried about this situation. And he was also worrying about somebody there that was, that was causing problems with, uh, the, 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 they were being legalistic, uh, the, the Judaizer group. And so Paul's writing this letter so that he says, when I do come, 
I won't be grieved by the very people who ought to give me the greatest joy. You see, he really wanted this painful situation to be fixed. And, and you know, we, sometimes people don't want to deal with those painful situations. They just, oh, let them go. Let them work themselves out. And, and then in time, they make things worse. Instead of better, they make things worse. There wasn't just the hypocrisy that Paul exposed by this man who slept with his mother-in-law in the church, but, he, but it was also the, the uh, suffering that he experienced as a result. Look at verse four, verse 4. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, notice, with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul wrote a harsh letter. Though it was a mournful letter because he loved the people. And he wrote this letter out of a deep affection for the Corinthian people. It was a heartfelt letter. It was a heartfelt pain that he was feeling. He didn't want to cause anybody pain. He cared about them. Even for the good of the offending brother. He cared about them. Another view is that the man Paul was referring to was causing, that was causing all the trouble. He was a leader of this legalistic group. And it seems in spite of Paul's visit... In Paul's mournful letter, this man was still leading this opposition, this opposition movement against Paul. So if this is true, the person that Paul has in mind here, Paul hoped that his tears and telling him about the love that he had for them and the warnings that he gave them, he was hoping that this man would be touched by, this, by, 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 by Paul's love and care for him and his heart and his conscience would be touched by it. Then... There was the truth that Paul shared with the people. Paul had been troubled by the greatest sin in their midst. But they had been defiled by this great sin in their midst. Look at verse 5. Paul says, But if anyone has caused grief, notice, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe to this man. Paul said, you know, this man, whoever it was, hasn't hurt me. Nearly as much as he's hurt you. But now, Paul turns from the reason for his letter to the results of that letter. In the first place, the man had been punished. Look at verse 6. He says, This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So by the time Paul wrote this letter, this last letter to the Corinthians, uh, it evidently met up with Titus. The sinning brother... Whichever it was had been dealt with, Paul says in verse 6. He's been punished. The majority sided with Paul in punishing this man. But the man was in danger of being overwhelmed because of the punishment. We don't know what the punishment was. What Paul told them to do in the first letter was to call the church together and excommunicate the man. Handing him over to Satan, Paul said, for the destruction of the flesh hoping that eventually he would repent, that is, he would be sorry for his sin, and he'd be restored. The expression Paul uses in verse 6, where he says, such a man, this same expression is used in his first letter, uh, like it is here, which seems to point to the same person. In any case, Paul mercifully keeps from naming the man involved. The man had suffered. And we can be sure that Satan took advantage of the excommunication to torment this man. And Paul felt sorry for the man. So Paul said the punishment was enough. 
what the man had gone through. He's been excommunicated. Uh, Satan's probably, you know, just telling him all kinds of, of wicked things in, in his ear and, and you're just, you know, making him feel bad and discouraged. And, and Paul said, okay, he's been punished. The word punishment literally means to censure, to condemn. The word was used by the Greeks to refer to the estimate set by a judge on the violation of rights and privileges of citizenship. So by the time Paul wrote this letter, Paul had learned that the Corinthian church's condemnation of this unhappy man, in all probability, he had learned from Titus about the the consequences. So Paul is saying, hey, enough is enough. We know what happened to Job when he fell into Satan's hands. When God told told Satan, hey, you you can do whatever you want to Job, but you can't take his life. We know the, the trial and the tribulation and the pain and the suffering that, 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 that Job went through when God allowed Satan to, to, to deal with him. And so, again, so we know what happened to Job when he fell into Satan's hands. We know what happened to Peter, remember, when Satan was allowed to sift him like wheat. Peter's sorrow was so severe. It was very severe after he denied the Lord. But the Lord warned Peter He not only warned Peter ahead of time of how bad it would be, but he also told Peter, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. The fact that disciplinary steps were taken against this man by the majority shows that it wasn't unanimous. There were still some people in the Corinthian church who would hold out against Paul and his authority, even in such a case of wickedness that had taken place in their church. The man had been punished. So Paul is saying, he's been punished. He's paid his dues for what he had done. Now it's time to forgive him. It's time to forget uh, and to comfort him. Why? Because he might be overcome by discouragement. You see, there was the matter now of of the remorse. Look at verse 7. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Paul says, you know what? It's time to forgive him and to comfort him in case he's overwhelmed with with sorrow and discouragement. Titus, Paul's colleague, might have seen this man. And, And Titus may have been able to tell Paul firsthand how much this man was suffering. So, in any case, Paul calls, calls for forgiveness of this man. And here's the thing. Sometimes believers can be just as unmerciful and unforgiving and cruel as the unbeliever. Especially when a man has fallen into moral sin. In some people's minds, that person is branded for life. But we need to always remember that one's moment of weakness, and everybody has them. One's moment of weakness does not define one's character. The word forgive here used by Paul means to unconditionally bestow favor. We are to unconditionally bestow favor on people who have fallen and and who have repented of their sin. The word for comfort has several different meanings. One of them is calling to one's side. It's a calling to one's side. It's like the word Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Jesus, there will be one who comes alongside you. 
And that's the word comfort means here, to come alongside. In other words, the church was to come alongside this man and comfort him now. Bring him back into the, into the body of Christ. Despair can drive a person to suicide. Apostasy, even deeper sins. Being too severe was just as wrong as being too lenient. Like his Lord, Paul didn't want to crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. There was this matter of restoration. Look at verse 8. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Paul says, hey, I want you to confirm your love to this man. It was time to show this man mercy. It was time to let him know, hey, you are freely and totally forgiven. The word reaffirm here means to ratify, to confirm. Paul recommends a public act of restoration just as it was a public act of excommunication. Just as they all got together and say, hey, you know what? If you're going to live in this kind of sin, you, know, you, you, you need to go somewhere else. You can't live in sin. You can't do the thing that you're doing and stay in the church. It has to be dealt with. And in the same way they say you had to leave the church, in the same way they say, hey, you are forgiven and you are restored. And lastly, Paul turns to, uh, again, a review of his previous letter. He tells the Corinthians his letter had a secondary purpose. So it had another purpose. He had another purpose for writing it. Look at verse 9. He says, for to this end, I also wrote. In other words, this is another reason that I wrote to you. He says that I might put you to the test. Whether you are obedient in all things. So he tells, he tells the, the, the Corinthians he had other objectives for this letter. He wanted to avoid another painful visit to Corinth. So he says, that's why I wrote this letter. He wanted to assure them of his special love for them. And at the same time, he wanted to find out to what degree were they going to submit to his authority. How far would they go in obeying what Paul said to do? So he considers not only the secondary purpose, the second reason for, uh, of, for his letter, but also will it be successful? Will it do what it was written and, and, to, and will it be carried out to, to be done? The people are going to read it, but will they follow what Paul's directions were? It had achieved its purpose so far as the sinning brother was concerned. He was repentant. He was forgiven. So the brother did what he was supposed to do. The man who sinned, he did what he was supposed to do. Repent. Now, those that, 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 you know, had him leave the church. Now, are they going to follow what Paul recommended? And he recommends, again, forgiveness. He urges complete forgiveness for two reasons. Look at verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 10. He says, Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. The verse here suggests that there might have been some injury done to Paul. He says, for if I have forgiven anyone. But it's not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 if, you know, again, injury was done to him. It's possible that when Paul's first letter was read to the man who sinned, that maybe he had badmouthed Paul. Maybe he was calling Paul names or attacking his authority, even telling lies about Paul. But again, he says, if, you know, if he's forgiven them, are they going to forgive him? A man who would do what he was doing, 
wouldn't likely accept Paul's condemnation lying down. In other words, what Paul had done, that man most likely wouldn't have you know, taken it very well. He would have called Paul names. He would have accused him of things and, and, and started lying about Paul. But Paul says, in any case, he says, I am more willing to forgive all personal injuries and insults that resulted from this whole situation now that the man is clearly repentant. You see, where, where there was no essential, essential principle of truth violated and, and, and it, was a, it wasn't an essential of the faith, Paul was very conciliatory with men. He was very forgiving. And the sooner this whole thing was settled, the better in Paul's eyes. Paul says, if you forgive the man, you can be sure I forgive him no matter what he's done to me. And then he adds, I forgive him as in the presence of Christ. He says, as though Jesus was watching Paul's actions. How could he not forgive that man? Paul's thinking is, when he was in the presence of the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do when he was on the cross. You know, it is a sorry and sad thing to carry grudges. But you know what? People do it all the time. They say they don't, but they do. So forgiveness wasn't only possible, it was now the wise thing to do for a couple of reasons. First, it was wise because of what Satan could do. Look at verse 11. Paul says, to forgive them, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We shouldn't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Paul never lost sight of Jesus, and he never lost sight of the devil either. We must never underestimate the strength of our enemy. But at the same time, we don't have to live in a constant fear of him as well. The best way to keep the enemy out is to keep Jesus in. The sheep don't need to be terrified by the wolf, but they have to stay close to the shepherd every single moment. Paul, like you said, he had handed this man over to Satan in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. But he did that only as a drastic step to see the man become restored. And Satan was more than eager to take advantage of this whole situation. Because Satan could make this man's living, uh, his life a living nightmare. And, and Satan would, take, would also get a, a perverted pleasure in doing it. And he could take advantage of this situation and keep the whole Corinthian church in chaos. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to just, he wants to, to keep the church in chaos. And, and, and all it takes is one person, you know, in sin that it, and, and have it not dealt with properly, continuing in the sin and the people knowing it and the people you know, backbiting and talking about it and some supporting him, some not support. You, you have all of this confusion, all of this chaos. And Satan just makes it a, a, a big mess. Paul knew, all right, that he could, that, that, you know, he could work on Paul's, also Satan could work on Paul's uh, injured feelings if he had them. That's why he didn't have them or if he, or if he kept any kind of bad feelings. He knew that, that Satan could work on those injured feelings. He could make Paul resentment. He could make Paul bitter. And if Paul held resentment or if Paul was bitter, he would be grieving the Holy Spirit. 
There were many tricks that Satan could use if this whole situation was not dealt with properly and not dealt with once and for all. The word devices means this, that that which is thought out, that which is thought out. We are not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. We're not to be ignorant of the things that Satan thinks out. We may not know know, everything he thinks out, but the Bible tells us enough to know how Satan works. Genesis 3.1, God says Satan is the most cunning um, creature that he created. Satan thinks out every move that he makes. He knows, Satan knows how to take advantage of our circumstances. So our only safe course is to stay close to Jesus and to obey his word. Paul now has almost finished this long and somewhat wordy report about his plans. He's told us how they were overthrown. And now he tells us how they were overruled. For instance, there was, you remember, he, he, was, he was moving toward uh, a Macedonia. He wanted to go to Macedonia. Uh, there was this move towards Macedonia, I should say. Two things needed to be mentioned. There was his coming to Troas, and there was his concern about Titus. Look at verses 12 through 13. Furthermore, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Paul had written his letter. He sent it to Corinth with, in care of Titus. No sooner was the letter gone, and Paul seems to have had doubts about, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have wrote that letter. Maybe I shouldn't have sent that letter. It seems to have been a passionate letter. You know, full of, full of, of terrible warnings, but yet tender encouragement. And then Paul seems to have you know, gotten to, sunk into this, this despair, this deep despair. And sometimes we forget. You know, we see Paul, Paul fall into a, is this deep despair. Sometimes we forget that even the greatest heroes like Elijah, as James said, are subject to like passions and we are. We're just human, flesh and blood. And as though a deep depression wasn't enough, the situation in Ephesus that was brewing, it blew up. And and Paul found himself surrounded by circumstances that were so threatening, he didn't think he was going to make it out alive. He He said he despaired even of life. He despaired of even escaping with his life. So what does he do? He goes to Troas. Paul was drawn to Troas since his second missionary journey. He'd wanted to go there. He found an open door to evangelism in Asia uh, Minor. It was uh, firmly close to him. He came to Phrygia. He came to Asia, Mysia, Bithynia, Troas. And all the time, the Holy Spirit had been closing the doors to him. Then he had the vision that came from the man from Macedonia. And all of a sudden, he realized, God is calling me to Europe. That was a dream place for for Paul. It was was close to Troy in Asia Minor. It was a place that was, it was a busy seaport. It was really populated. So it was just the kind of place where Paul loved to preach the gospel. Evidently, Paul hoped to meet up with Titus in Troas and then coming back with the news from Corinth. But there was no sign of him. Paul said, notice, I had no rest in my spirit. So he, he's, he's talking about his state of mind when he couldn't find Titus. He said, man, I had no rest in my spirit. So what does he do? He went to Macedonia. So he says, so by taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. 
Paul might have stayed around Troas until winter and then stopped traveling by sea. But once he was sure that Titus couldn't come by sea, Paul headed into Macedonia by land. And then, finally, Titus came. And then Paul, who had been defending his motives, he had done, he had done it in a word of comfort, and he had done it in an explanation in chapter 1. And now he ends this part of the letter with a word of exclamation. Now we see the real Paul again. In other words, the, the Paul that, that was always enthusiastic. The Paul who always seemed to be living on, on the side of victory. In verse 14, we see the enthusiasm of a true Christian. Look at verse 14 now. Paul says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us into triumph. Notice, always, not sometimes, not maybe. Jesus, uh, God always leads us into triumph through Christ. Paul couldn't explain the disappointments he experienced. He couldn't explain the detours that he had to take in his life. But here's what he was sure of. God was in control. And this is the thing that we need to understand and, and, and keep in mind. Because we do have disappointments. There are detours in life. And no, we can't explain them. We don't know the whys. But what we do know is that God is in complete control. And I tell you, many times when we have these disappointments and we have these detours, it is for a good reason. And then we look back and go, man, I thank God that God didn't allow me to go there. I thank God didn't allow me to do that because we see what would have turned out. So Paul rises up out of this pit of despair because in meeting Titus, it made Paul a new man. The good news that Titus brought Paul from Corinth about this incestuous man who repented, it caused Paul's soul to give thanks to God. All the glory belonged to God. Paul said, I thank God. No doubt Paul's letter played a part of the repentance of this incestuous man. But Paul doesn't take any credit. He says, oh man, it's a good thing I wrote that letter, man, because it fixed that guy. No, it was all God. The Lord won the victory. Paul saw, he saw things through through spiritual eyes. And when he saw this, it was a picture of him to a, a Roman victory. When a Roman, you know, a warrior, a, a commander, when a Roman commander got the victory, this is what Paul saw when he saw this victory of the incestuous man. And the picture of this victory was when, when a Roman conquering soldier, when he, when he triumphed in battle, what that commander would do, the Senate granted him the triumph. They said, you know, he, he triumphed, he was the victor. So what the commander would do, he would take all of the prisoners that he captured, all these disarmed prisoners, he would chain him to his ter- he would chain them to his chariot and then he would march through town in his victory march and he'd show off all of these prisoners that he had captured and how he had defeated them. They were put on display. And the visible proof of this commander's victories was on the battlefields was 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 on display. Paul could see Satan chained up, just like these these captured soldiers would be chained up on this Roman commander's victory march. And he's joining the cheering crowd. 
He cheers the commander-in-chief is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We also see or we also observe the fragrance of a true Christian. The fragrance of a true Christian. Notice it says here that and through us, Paul says, through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. The sin of the incestuous man, it left a terrible smell in that church. It was an offense to the nostrils of the unsaved. But his repentance and transformed life, it tranced him so that now there was a new obedience in this man. And now there was a fragrance of Christ to everyone around him. He had gone from a a, a stench to a sweet-smelling aroma in his life. This man was no longer a hindrance to the word of God. He was now a wonderful advertisement of gospel. He was a sweet-smelling perfume to everyone. And that's what the Word of God does. That's what the gospel does. When a person repents of their sins and they come to Christ, and it changes their life, and now they're living for God, and their life has changed, and and they're walking with God, it's an advertisement of what the power of God's Word can do. And instead of a stench in people's lives, they become a sweet-smelling aroma to everyone. Paul saw the Christian life in those words. In the Old Testament, when priests were consecrated to the ministry of the sanctuary, there would be a fragrant, holy anointing oil that was poured on them. It was poured on their robes. And after that, that fragrance would follow them wherever they went. When that, when that priest... You know, would go into, the, into the, the sanctuary or that priest would go into his home or that priest would go out into the city streets. People would smell that fragrance, that sweet-smelling aroma. Their presence could be often sensed way before they could be seen. Paul could say that the triumph of Christ was just like that fragrance. It was in every place. And again, that's how the gospel best spreads. When it's, a, when it's, again, when it's a sweet-smelling fragrance in people's lives. When the people see and sense the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ in his people, they will be attracted to him. They want to see Jesus. They don't want to see me. They want to see Jesus in me, but they don't want to see me. And that's who we are to point people to, Jesus Christ. Not ourselves, not a church, not a religion. We want to point them to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who died for their sins. He's the one who can save them. We know, though, that everybody is not attracted by Christ. They're not attracted by the fragrance of Christ. Paul's a realist. He mentions the reaction to that fragrance of his. Paul had, Paul had seen many men turn away from Jesus Christ with hostility and hate. And he tells us that, that saints love that fragrance. Notice verse 15. They love that fragrance of Christ. Verse 15 says, For we are to God, notice, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, sinners hate the fragrance among those who are perishing. Verse 16, To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. We, are, we carry the fragrance of Christ with us. 
It's pleasingly attractive to some, and yet it's terribly offensive to other people. Now, there's a mystery here. And, and we see it in nature. One person can pick uh, some flowers, and they can enjoy the, 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 the sweet fa- fragrance of that flower. Another person can, can pick that same flower, and then they begin to sneeze, and their eyes water, and their nose runs. They're allergic to them. You know, what's a delightful fragrance to one is a deadly fragrance to the other. And that's the way it is with the fragrance of Jesus Christ. We see that in the world today. The mystery becomes even greater when it comes to God's grace. An example is two children grow up in the same home, the same environment, same parents, the same love, the same teaching and discipline. Yet one turns to Jesus and then the other turns to a different life. It's a mystery. The mystery of how the fragrance of Christ draws some and damns others. It can be seen all through the Bible. Remember the smell of Abraham's offering made Cain angry. Isaac and Ishmael were equally loved by Abraham. And yet Isaac became a believer and Ishmael became a mocker and a rebel. Esau and Jacob were twins. Yet Jacob chose the birthright and the blessing. Esau grew up irreverent. The fragrance of Christ is the aroma of life to some and the death to others. Remember, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And Paul said, hey, who is sufficient for these things or or who is able for such a ministry? And then last of all, we have the fidelity of the true Christian. Verse 17. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. There are those who enrich themselves from peddling God's word. We can see many of them on the TV. They peddle God's word. They corrupt God's word. They use it for their own gaining of wealth. And all they do is spend the time talking about money, making money. Paul says, hey, I'm not here to peddle God's word. Paul condemned this kind of behavior. Paul condemned all deceitful handling of the word of God. And he reminded the Corinthians that his heart was sincere. He said, I'm not doing this for any other reason than I want to see you come to Jesus Christ. There was no need to be clever. There was no need to peddle the word of God to corrupt it. When he was following in Christ's triumphant steps, it was all because he he taught the word of God. He didn't peddle it. He called for sincerity. He called for men who would preach like he did under under God's all-seeing eye. That they might understand him. God knew his heart. So in closing, we don't have to fail. Hey, circumstances might discourage us. People will come against us. They will misunderstand us. But we have in Christ the spiritual resources to win the battle. We have a clear conscience, a compassionate heart, and a conquering faith. Solomon, Solomon said in Psalm, I'm sorry, the psalmist said in Psalm 37, 1 and 2 from the New Living Translation, he said, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong because like grass, they soon fade away and like spring flowers, they will soon wither. Paul said in Romans 8, verse 31 and 37, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
Father, we thank you so much for this chapter, Lord. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ in our life, God. And Father, we just pray for those this morning that might be here that don't know Christ, Lord. And maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to their hearts and maybe recognize, God, that they need Jesus. We all need Jesus. There's not a one person in this world that does not need Christ. It's not about those who are doing well or, or have things or, 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 or not. It's about having Christ. And if you're here this morning and, you, and the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, Art, and you feel that you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray this prayer out loud before we do communion. I'll say this prayer out loud, and it's just a prayer for you to follow. And, and you say it to the Lord with all of your heart. Pray with me, dear Jesus. Please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. Please cleanse me and wash me of all sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer, if you need a Bible, we'll be more than glad to give you one. Get into a Bible teaching church. If you're close by, come here. Uh, If you don't know one, come and see me, Pastor Tony. One of the ushers will be more than glad to to find a a Bible teaching church that we know of and and send you on your way. God bless you guys. Brother, Brother Don.